remain standing for the sermon text and epistle lesson from Romans chapter 5. I'm actually going to be backing up to verse 5 and reading through verse 8. Listen to God's infallible word. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God, please bless the reading and the preaching of your living and active word so that it does its work in us. Oh God, we pray that you would sanctify us by the truth and your word is truth. We specifically pray that you would, that your spirit would cultivate in us a deeper longing for the blessed hope, the hope of glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Happy New Year. Today's the first day in the new church year, in the church calendar, the first day of Advent. And in the season of Advent, we remember and anticipate the advents, the comings of our Lord Jesus Christ. His first coming in the flesh as a baby, as a man who went to the cross for our sins. That's the first advent in the first century A.D. And then the second advent, the second coming of Christ, which is still to come. During the, the four Sundays, the four weeks in advent, we, we look back to his first coming, but we also even as I said in the prayer, we cultivate longing for his return, for what Paul calls in our text, last week's text in particular, but it's in your handout in gray, the hope of glory, the hope of the glory of God when God glorifies us, when he shares his glory with us in all of its fullness. Right now we only taste of that glory a little bit. We've been a, given a little bit of it now, but we long to receive the fullness of the glory that God will give us on the last day. And so the dominant theme in the first paragraph of Romans 5 is the Christian's future hope, the hope of glory, the blessed hope, as Paul calls it elsewhere when he's writing to Timothy. He says in Romans 5, 5, that if you put all your eggs in this hope basket, it will not put you to shame. It will not disappoint you on the last day. You won't be shamed or disappointed on Judgment Day in the presence of the heavenly and earthly onlookers. Right after he says this at the beginning of verse 5, he anticipates our questions. How can I be sure of this? this how can I know that this hope of glory is true? How can I be certain that I'm not just wishing it's true? Now, let me ask you, how do you know 
that the blessed hope is really coming, that you've really been given a, a deposit of it now, a down payment of it now when Christ gave you his spirit. How do you know that's really in your future? It's okay to ask this kind of question as long as we run to the Bible for the answers. And today, Paul provides answers. He gives us the grounds of our assurance, the foundation for our hope. Paul provides the first part of the answer in verse 5. There he focuses on the what we could call the internal or subjective ground for hope, the inside of us ground for hope. He says that we can know our hope is certain, we can rest assured that it's true, that it won't let us down on the last day. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The end of verse 5 there on your handout. The Holy Spirit has poured God's love into your hearts, into my heart. So the first reason Paul gives for your hope has to do with what's happening inside of you. He goes first to the subjective or internal grounds of your assurance. This is instructive for us because we often think that the internal evidence for the reality of faith in Jesus, our, our faith in Jesus, the, the work that God d is doing inside of us, we often think that it's unre unreliable or maybe even unimportant. We tend to think that the only important and trustworthy evidence for the truth is objective evidence, evidence that exists outside of me, evidence that I can point others to as proof that Jesus is real and my Christian hope is founded. But verse 5 says you can know God is real and that he loves you in Christ because you experience his love, because you know him. You know that you know that you know because you know firsthand that the eternal spirit of God, the third person of the Godhead, has poured the eternal love of the Trinity. That's the love we're talking about here. Don't miss that. The eternal love of the Trinity into the center of your being, into the depths of your soul, into the core of you. Just let that sink in. Paul says that this is the experience of Christians, and it's grounds for assurance and hope. Now, some of you may be wondering at this point if you're a true Christian because you're not sure what Paul's talking about in verse 5. Uh, some of you children perhaps may be confused about what Paul means here. What kind of experience is, is he talking about? What's the, what's the pastor talking about? What does it feel like to have a heart that is full of God's love? How do I know if the Holy Spirit has poured Trinitarian love into my heart? What's this all about? Well, the first thing I want to say, especially to you children, is that you can still be a Christian even if you're not sure you know what kind of inner experience Paul is referring to here in verse 5. If you're a little confused about what Paul means here, you shouldn't automatically start doubting that you're a believer. That's not the point here. But the second thing I want to say to adults and children alike is that you can't be a mature Christian. You can't become a thriving, growing, fruitful, 
joy-filled believer until you learn what Paul is talking about in verse 5 and begin to experience it in your heart in a conscious way. All right, so, so both of those are true. This shouldn't be grounds for doubt, but it also should spur you on as a Christian. The, the greater your inner sense of God's love, the, the greater will be your confidence, your hope, your communion with God, your peace, your joy, and your power in living the Christian life. And the third thing I want to say is that the people who experience God's love in their inner being, in their hearts, the most are those who spend the most time with God. If you don't know what it feels like to experience the Trinitarian love that the Holy Spirit has poured out into your heart as a believer, it's because you need to get to know the Trinitarian God. You need to develop a relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You can experience the love of anyone apart from a personal relationship with that person. And your experience of God's love works exactly the same way. Paul's language here indicates that the experience he's referring to can be powerful and, and memorable, though most of the time it's mild. It's a mild experience. Even Christians who spend a lot of time with God in prayer and, and reading the scriptures and meditating on God's word and the truths in the word who are who go to their prayer closets and spend time before the throne of grace even they usually don't experience this love in a dramatic fashion most of the time it's felt in a gentle in gentle ways but some christians have written about the very powerful experiences of God's love and presence. Maybe you've, you've had those experiences yourself. Richard Sibbs, one of the English Puritans, wrote of the Spirit's work in his heart. He said, sometimes our spirits cannot stand in trials. Therefore, sometimes the immediate testimony of the Spirit is necessary. It comes saying, I am thy salvation. And our hearts are stirred up and comforted with joy inexpressible. This joy hath degrees. Sometimes it is so clear and strong that we question nothing. Other times, doubts come in soon. One of Sibbs' contemporaries, William Guthrie, described it this way. It is no audible voice, but it is a ray of glory filling the soul with God as life, love, and liberty. It is like the word to Daniel that said, O oh man, greatly beloved. Or like the word to Mary Magdalene on Easter morning. The Lord only said her name, Mary, and filled her soul so she could no longer doubt she was his. Oh, how glorious is this manifestation of the Spirit. In verses 6 to 8, Paul turns from the internal grounds of assurance to the objective, external, outside of us grounds for assurance. The bedrock of our hope is the death of Christ for helpless sinners. Jesus died for the ungodly. 
That's the next point on your outline. That's Paul's thesis in verse 6. Then in verses 7 and 8, Paul unpacks what he means. And we could summarize his argument this way. Verse 7, rarely will someone die for a righteous person. Verse 8, but Jesus died for you while you were a helpless sinner. So whereas verse 5 said that we have hope because we experience God's love in our hearts, verses 6 to 8 say that we have hope because God demonstrated his love in history. We experience God's love in our hearts. God demonstrated his love in history. Look at verses 6 to 8. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so the, the rest of the sermon today will focus on this objective, historical, theological foundation for our future hope, the hope of glory. It's a historical fact that while we were still helpless, before we had turned to God in any way whatsoever, while we were sinners, while we were ungodly, while we were at enmity, at war with God, Christ died for us on a cross. So just think of it. The long-awaited king, Israel's Messiah, who turned out to be God himself, gave up all of his heavenly glory and then gave up his life for his sworn enemies. For his sworn enemies, not for his friends. For sworn enemies who would become his friends later because he went to the cross for them. So let's make sure we understand the logic of Paul's argument in verses 7 and 8. So in the first part of verse 7, Paul says it takes a, a mighty sacrificial love to die to save another person, even a good person. It, har it hardly happens. In fact, it's, it's rare for someone to die in the place of a, of a righteous man. Though if that person is particularly upright, it could happen. However, what never happens is sacrificial death for evildoers. Die for a good person? Maybe. But for a wicked man? No. Paul's setting himself up for his point in verse 8. There is a single act, a, a, a single action that proves beyond any reasonable doubt that God loves you. It demonstrates beyond any doubt God's love for you. While you were a helpless sinner, while you were a member of rebellious humanity, Christ died for you. And, and by the way, verse 8 is evidence that Christ is God. It's hard to imagine how the death of Christ would demonstrate God's love for us if Christ himself were not God. This were not God himself giving himself. Paul's message here is that God demonstrated his love by entering his creation and becoming human and going to a Roman cross on our behalf. God did this. How much more love could God have given? 
There's nothing more God, God could have done to demonstrate in time and space that he is love. The cross is where we find out most of all who God is. Who our God is. What he's like. We, we get to peer into his nature when we fix our eyes on the cross. It's a historical event that gives you certainty that God is love and assurance that his love is for those who know him. The death of Christ is the basis for that personal experience of God's love that Paul mentioned back in verse 5. If you felt the love of the Holy Spirit, uh, the love of God that the Holy Spirit has poured into your heart, if you've experienced something like what Sibs and Guthrie described in those quotes that I read, then you can know it's real because the death of Christ for your sins is real. But it's equally true that if you haven't experienced much of what Paul describes back in verse 5, if you've put your trust in Christ, but the feelings of being in communion with God seem to evade you, the sense of his deep love for you just isn't there the way you're thinking it maybe is for others, for Sibs, Guthrie, maybe what Paul's talking about here. The love that he's poured into your heart seems undetectable. Then you can still know objectively when you look to the cross, when you look to Jesus, that God loves you and that God is for you, even if your feelings or your circumstances seem to suggest that you remain God's enemy. This is the first time Paul has mentioned the greatness of God's love in this letter in Romans. Paul brings this theme into his letter at this point to assure all who've been declared righteous before God by faith in Christ that they've been saved because of God's love and nothing will ever be able to separate them from that love. That, that particular point or that particular argument reaches its climax in the famous passage at the end of Romans 8, and we'll get there eventually. There's nothing more encouraging, more edifying, more uplifting than this theme of God's undying love, or we could say dying love, for his people. And yet, Paul's statements about the nature, scope, and permanence of God's love in verses 6 to 8 are placed against the backdrop, the black curtain of human sin. Did you notice that? Christ died for who? The ungodly. He died for us while we were what? Sinners. And to appreciate these statements, we've got to understand the evil nature of those for whom Christ died, those whom God loves. There are two reasons that we need to appreciate this. The first reason is that it's only against that black backdrop, the, the black backdrop of your sin and my sin, that you can see the brilliance and the greatness of God's love for you because it's in stark contrast. If we imagine that God decided to love us because we were particularly lovable, then God's love will appear to be no greater than our lovability. You see how that works? 
If it's because you're lovable, then his love is not necessarily any greater than your lovability. However lovable we are, that's how great and wonderful God's love will tend to be in our minds. It's like a a beautiful woman who thinks her husband loves her because of her beauty. She's always insecure, always trying to look younger than she is, always obsessing about her makeup or her wardrobe because, in her mind at least, her husband's love for her is only as great as her outward beauty. If our perception of God's love for us is limited to our lovability, we simultaneously blind ourselves to the greatness of God's love and to the greatness of our sin. The second reason we've got to come to grips with our wickedness is that if we think we deserve God's love, we'll we'll never be able to rest in it. We'll always worry that we might do something to diminish it, to lessen it, or even possibly destroy it. You need to know, Christian, that if it were possible for you to diminish God's love for you, then it would have already happened because you're far worse a sinner than you realize. Your sin goes deeper than you know. It's only those who know God's love and, and, and who know that God loves them in spite of their wickedness who can know with confidence that God will continue to love them continue to have to to show favor to them with unwavering intensity undying intensity notice the words paul uses to describe the people that god saves loves and saves he uses four powerful words three in our passage that i read and then one in next week's passage The words are helpless, ungodly, sinners, and then down in verse 10, enemies. Helpless means weak, without strength, powerless, feeble. The idea here is that left to ourselves, no one is able to do anything to gain favor with God. Paul describes here what's been called the doctrine of total inability, okay, which is not exactly total depravity related, but total inability apart from Christ. Humans are totally helpless, totally unable to make any movement toward God. What specifically are we helpless or unable to do? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that we're unable to do spiritual things. The natural person, Paul says, the unconverted person, the person who does not know God or have God's spirit, the person without the new birth, does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because those things are, Paul says, spiritually discerned. Jesus says in John 3, 3, that before we, can, uh, b- before we were born again, we were unable to see the kingdom of God, that we can't see the kingdom of God or enter into it, Unless we've been born again, truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And a couple verses later, he can't enter it. Ephesians 2, 1, Paul gives the reason for the former inability of believers to do any spiritual good. You were dead in your transgressions and 
sins or trespasses and sins. In other words, you were no more able to respond to God than a corpse is able to get up and walk or to respond to stimuli around it. You were spiritually helpless, Paul says. The next word he uses to describe those God loves and saves is ungodly. And this doesn't just mean not like God, unlike God. It refers to someone who is in a state of opposition, fierce opposition to God. God is sovereign, but ungodly people oppose him in his sovereignty. They don't want his rule over their lives. They want to be their own God. They want a reality without God. God is holy, but the ungodly oppose him in his holiness. They don't want to acknowledge his holy and righteous standards. They don't want to have to, they don't want to have to answer for their sinful deeds. They don't want their desires to be questioned. Then in verse 8, Paul uses the word sinners to describe those whom God loves and saves. A sinner is someone who falls short of God's standard, who misses the mark of God's standard. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. To be a sinner is to be a lawbreaker. Paul says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death, eternal death. And the fourth word Paul uses to describe those whom God loves and saves is enemies. Verse 10. This word summarizes the first three, but also goes beyond them. Not only were you unable to save yourself or to make any movement toward God to raise yourself from the dead spiritually, not only were you unlike God and fiercely opposed to him, not only were you a lawbreaker who falls short constantly of the glory of God, who breaks God's law regularly, but you were also a sworn enemy of God who would have attacked him and destroyed him if you could. If you want a picture of the potential of your enmity with God, you can turn sometime to the, to the last pages of your Bible and read about how the wicked are going to respond to God right before they are cast into the lake of fire. Romans 20, verses 7 to 10, say that at the very end, everyone who does not know God is going to gather together. They're going to form a, an army of sorts with Satan as their, their leader. And together, they're going to try one last time to destroy God and his holy city where his people are. It's, it's obviously an exercise in futility. But unbelievers hate God so much that they, think, they, they don't think clearly about the consequences of their sins. Earlier in Romans, at the end of chapter 1, Paul says that unbelievers know the consequences of their sin. They know that because of their sin, they deserve God's righteous judgment. Okay? And this exercise in futility at the end before they're thrown into the lake of fire is an pri the prime example of knowing but not caring because you hate God so much. And that was us. All those enemies know 
is their hatred of God. And, and you would have been one of those enemies in Revelation 20 going to battle against Christ if Christ had not died for you and given you the new birth when you were helpless and sinful and ungodly and fully at war with him in your heart. Paul doesn't present a rosy profile of humanity. But it's only against this black backdrop that we see the shining brilliance of God's love, which is demonstrated in the death of Christ. Jesus didn't die for close friends who loved him. That's the point here. He didn't die for noble people. He laid down his life for those who hated him and wanted him dead, those who would have fought him tooth and nail right up to the point of being thrown into the lake of fire, just in case it might work. On this basis, God commends to you his love for you. He, this is God commending his love for you, to you. He's commending it to you. Is there anything else God could have done? Tell me if there's anything else God could have done to demonstrate how much he loves you, to show you just how unreserved his love for you is. Can you think of anything? It's astounding that we even need this, that we need God to demonstrate his love for us in the first place, but we do. It's astounding that we should need such a thing because he's already given us so much. He's given us life and health, tasty food, plenty of clothing, comfortable shelter, family and friends, meaningful work, freedom, a safe place to live, and, and so much more. One of our Friday after Thanksgiving traditions in our home is to write down things that we are grateful for. Maybe you do this in the Thanksgiving season in your home as well. Every year on the day after Thanksgiving, we remind one another in our, in our family of all the blessings of our existence that God has poured out on us from heaven. The Father of lights has poured out on us. Of, of, of how God has been far kinder to us than we deserve. These blessings should prove God's love beyond any reasonable doubt. Yet we do doubt. We find ourselves doubting. So God, through Paul, points us to the cross where we see the love of God for us on full display. Some of you know that my favorite song is Jesus Loves Me. And several sermons, some sermons ago, I shared with you some of the revised lyrics that my family sings. Not, not much, just a little bit. But one of my favorite stories also has to do with this song. A very well-known Swiss theologian from the 20th century was asked one time by an American when he was in the States, what is the greatest thought that has ever gone through your mind? Uh, a little bit of an odd question, but this, this Swiss theologian was considered by many to be something of the, the Einstein of Christian theology, and this American admirer wanted to know, what, what is the greatest thought that has ever gone through your mind? And the questioner probably expected some complex theological answer, a formulation of some kind, perhaps, an answer that was incomprehensible to the uninitiated. If that's the case, he was disappointed. 
after he had thought a while, the theologian replied, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that's the greatest thought he ever had. What a profound and beautiful answer it was. There's no greater thought that could ever go through your mind than the knowledge, the assurance that God loves you. Again, tell me something greater to think about. The Bible tells you he does. The cross tells you he does. And in your baptism, God called you by name and assured you that his cruciform love is aimed specifically at you. Do you believe this? Do you accept God's love? Are you resting in it? Are you experiencing it in your heart? As Paul says in in verse 5. If not, why not? What's stopping you? What are the obstacles in your way? The foundation for your hope and assurance has two layers. We could think of it that way. The top layer is your inner knowledge of God's love, your experience of God's love that the Holy Spirit has poured into your heart, filling it up. If this experience is foreign to you, if this is not something you know much about, it's because you're not in the habit of seeking a personal relationship with God. In Jeremiah 29, 13, God says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart, the same heart that God's love has been poured into. You can't experience the Trinitarian Trinitarian love that the Holy Spirit has poured out into your heart until you seek the Trinitarian God with all your heart. When you do, God promises that you will find him, and there you will taste of his love. And once you've had a taste, you'll want more. You'll come back for more. Though the devil will try to distract you from it. Augustine famously said that God made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. Well, if you're a Christian, God has poured his love into your heart and your heart will be restless until it finds rest in his love, in God's love. The bottom layer of the foundation The bedrock of your hope and assurance is the objective demonstration in history, in time and in space, at a location on this earth where God demonstrated his love in the death of Christ. The demonstration of God's love for you in, at the cross, in the death of Jesus. If you don't fully appreciate the greatness of God's love for you, it's likely because you don't see the depths of your sinfulness. You you probably haven't considered how God saw you when he chose to come to earth and die for you. Perhaps you've never thought of yourself as someone who by nature is utterly helpless spiritually, In spiritual matters, you were without strength at all. You were dead. 
You have the ability of a corpse. Perhaps you've never considered how ungodly you were and sometimes still are, even now that you are a Christian. Perhaps you don't think of the cross against that dark backdrop of your sins and your sinfulness. Has it ever occurred to you that you would have been one of those enemies in Revelation 27 to 10 in that ugly scene of irrational rebellion? If you begin to, act, to, to recognize the accuracy of Paul's descriptions of you when God decided to save you, helpless and godly, sinner, enemy, if you begin to acknowledge the truth of these descriptions, you can begin to understand and then experience God's love that is yours through the death of Christ. God loves you. Christ died for you. These are the greatest thoughts in world history, the greatest thoughts anyone could ever have. Let them course through your, your mind and your heart. Let them move you to abandon your sin and to live in the light of God's love for you. Let's pray and ask him to help us do this. Our God and our Father, we thank you for shining the light of Jesus Christ into our hearts. We thank you for pouring the love of the Trinitarian God into our hearts. We thank you for making us sons in whose hearts the Spirit lives and cries out, Abba, Father. We acknowledge that this is your work, God, not ours. And we pray that this week and the rest of of this month and the rest of this church year, we will live in the light of your love. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.